Hello, good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, wherever you are. This is Smart Remarks in Howarth States. I'm Doug Howarth. And I'm Christian Smart. Christian, how are you today? I'm doing well. How about you? Good, thanks. Hey, since we lost, talked over the airwaves here, you formally got a name for your book, and it's up for advanced sale on Amazon. I already got a copy. Why don't you tell us about it? Yes, it's called um, Solving for Project Risk Management, uh, Understanding the Critical Role of Uncertainty in Project Management. A little bit of a mouthful, but um, I think it helps people when they search on various terms. Maybe it helped the book come up. Um, start out with a very different title, and publisher uh, rightly said, hey, let's put risk in the title, and uh, made a few changes. So uh, I think it's overall a good change. Uh, it's it's uh, it's about uh, risk for all projects. Uh, originally, I had uh, written a book or a manuscript, I guess, a draft for um, – risk for defense and aerospace projects and right. in marketing my book. They, they wanted something a little broader that would appeal to more people and they would McGraw Hill was willing to publish it on the condition that I broadened it to all projects. So I did a little research and I'm, I figured out that um, a lot of the research that I'd done over the years on risk uh, with an application to NASA defense aerospace applied to pretty much every project. So uh, the th- the same problems that I saw, and NASA and aerospace were pretty much across the board applied to every project. So, um, so I've kind of broadened it a little bit. It's, it's about, um, you know, there's a huge problem with cost and schedule growth. Historically, the problem is not getting better over time. Most, most projects, 70, 80% of all types of projects overrun both cost and schedule. Um, one out of six projects more than doubles in cost from the beginning to the end. Uh, with what they planned, what they actually spend. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a huge problem. It indicates, one, there's a lot of risk, and two, um, it's not being managed well. And so there's not a lot of risk, not a good risk management. So uh, that most motivates the discussion of risk. You have to look at risk. Uh, too many times people plan based on averages. Um, and, and Sam Savage, he wrote a book called The Flaw of Averages, which is basically that, Projects that are uh, planned to averages on average will be beyond budget and uh, over schedule, run, you know, you know have uh, run late. So um, you need to consider uncertainty. It needs to be quantitative. Too many uh, risk analyses are qualitative or use a simple matrix. It needs to be a sophisticated um, risk analysis. Uh, quanti- this quantitative, both cost and schedule. Ideally, Joint joint cost and schedule risk analysis, and there's a lot of. But even though you know uh, it's it's done occasionally, it's sometimes done. There's still a lot of issues with the way it's implemented. Uh, there's a lot of issues. Um, there's uh, a hoped-for diversification effect that doesn't really exist. People tend to ignore the tails of of risk distributions, the the real things out there that'll, that'll get you uh, those kinds of things. So. I talk about those problems and I talk about uh, fixes and, and ways to do better. And it's, it's the kind of thing where it's, it's really low hanging fruit for projects because just a, a little bit of this, I think can give projects a competitive advantage over the competition. Yeah. So when you're talking for the, the people that are not as well versed in this as you and, and even me, um, I'm not nearly as well versed in this as Christian. He's the world's, one of the world's leading experts. I'm, I'm a, an enthusiastic amateur, but 
For example, why we, if we were to talk about the Fukushima disaster, of course, they had a, an earthquake which led to a tsunami, and the tsunami created a wave, and the wave was over a certain threshold that they built the seawall to prevent the reactor from getting swamped with seawater, and of course, they, they got swamped with seawater. So from your perspective on a fat tail, why don't you tell us what the, the issues were there that they didn't see and allow for and what the ramifications of that would be? Because I, I find that pretty one of the most fascinating elements of what it is that you do. Yeah, so so they didn't really look for the, the tail events. Like, what, what are the, the bad things that could happen? So, for example, um, you know, they didn't count on the power going out. And it's, it's a several, several things. So they need to kind of look at some scenario planning, worst case type uh, issues. And, you know, they, they need, uh, you know, some backup generators would have helped uh, offset some of those issues. So, um, you know, when, when and those kinds of critical type of uh, systems, redundancy is key uh, to preventing a, a big disaster. So, um, yeah, they, they were near the ocean, which kind of set them up to some extent for uh, failure. It, it, it was a good location uh, close to the water. But it was a bad location because if there's a uh, tsunami, uh, that that raised the risk. And that's one of the things that uh, often happens is you know the locate you know they, they put it, should have put a little more thought into the location of this uh, system. Um, if they put it on higher ground, they wouldn't have had uh, those same issues. Yeah, if it had been on a bluff, then they wouldn't have had to build the seawall that ended up being too low, right? That was probably their their issue there, right? They built it very close to sea level, right? Right. Right. Okay, that's uh, that's the kind of problems that your book helps to illuminate and and gives suggestions to to fix. So, for example, suppose you were working with the Fukushima people before they finished their design. What is what were some of your suggestions to ameliorate the risk? Would have been what 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 would have you told them to do differently that they didn't do? They they should have looked at um, so what what they um, in, in in those kinds of industries. This is an, another issue of risk analysis. I don't spend a lot of time on the book, but this is an issue I have some experience with. Is uh, all these nuclear power plants had to do something called a probabilistic risk assessment, mm-hmm. um, which does a decent job of specifying individual risk, but not a very good job of analyzing the the overall risk because. Um, it doesn't really take into consideration a failure like what happened in Fukushima that could overwhelm multiple systems, which are considered redundant, and this just completely wipes away the redundancy. Uh-huh. So they, a more robust method for um, probabilistic risk assessment, and probabilistic risk assessment is uh, really lacking in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you know, there's a, a famous um, story about a, and if you have a faulty altimeter, you're going to crash the plane. But if the pilot doesn't have an altimeter, he'll look out the window and avoid, uh, you know, running into a mountain, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, some of these methods, uh, some of the quantitative methods like that are uh, actually somewhat dangerous in the sense that they they, they, they run the analysis. It looks like they, the chances of them failing are one in several million uh, when that's not the case. So, um the uh you know the famous uh, saying you know it's not what you don't know that hurts you it's what you think you know that just ain't so um, yeah and yeah. so they 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 believed that they had some built-in redundancy that wasn't there so they needed to look at uh 
some critical analysis to really uh, stress test um, the, the failure analysis should have, should have been conducted. Yeah, interesting you should talk about redundant systems. I mean, sometimes you can have redundant systems, but if the consideration of redundancy isn't well thought out, you can lose your redundancy in a heartbeat. I think the most famous example I could I could think of going back to aerospace was that all major airliners that you see now have double and triple redundant systems for flight control. I think they're all triple redundant now. I think they've been, they started out being double redundant, but famously the, the American airline, there, there was an American airlines, I believe it was a DC 10 that crashed that had a failure of a hydraulic line. So you, you lose your primary line. You want to go to your backup. Well, it turned out that the backup was in the same region as the primary. So when the primary line went out, the secondary went along with it. They lost their flight controls and they, they went into the ground. Yeah, uh, that's that's one of those, uh, you know, no pun intended, tail dependency. Um, <laughs> these extreme risks are, you know, kind of dependent, just like with the housing crisis. Uh, right. You know, one of the failures of, you know, the house, you know, the financial crisis of 2008 was, um, you know, was that people assumed that, that these risks, um, you know, that the tails were not dependent in the sense that if, uh, you, know, you know, this this tranche of mortgages default, that would not affect another tranche of mortgages defaulting or the independent, you know, the individual mortgages were not, uh, those extreme events were not uh, correlated and that's called tail dependency. And that's not, that was not handled by the models and, and uh, lack of consideration that's often blamed as a major contributor to the financial crisis because, um, you know, in their analysis, they, they look like the subprime mortgages. They could, they could invest in a lot of these and diversify, diversify away the risk, but, um, it, they really, they really did not. Yeah. There's, there's portfolio effects that they think exist, but they don't, they're, they're, that's an illusion sometimes. Right. That's, that's right. Right. They so, use a, they use actually a, a valid tool that that's often, that was, that, uh, came from, um, actually came from life insurance, uh, where, um, risks are what they call thin tailed, um, yes tend to follow normal distributions where, you know, and that, that kind of modeling was very appropriate, but then that was taken and applied to, to uh, mortgages, which, uh, you know, that kind of risk is fat tailed. And uh, that, that was a just a total disaster. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what the risk is now as we, as we record this and, and uh, right now today it is the, for those of you listening to this in the future, it's, it's May 27th, 2020. We're in the middle of the COVID-19 epidemic. It'll be interesting to see some of the risks that we're, we're, we're seeing now with respect to the disease and, and tracking the disease and, and how to approach it. So Christian lives in Tennessee. I live in California. Your state's been open for a while, and you're doing pretty well over there, aren't you, Christian? We're doing pretty decently. The The one thing that concerns me just recently is – you know, there's something called uh, the reproduction rate of the virus, which is, yeah. you know, represented by the letter R, the letter R, yeah. uh, R as in Ralph. And, um, and that's been, you know, the, the, the various models that are tracking that number have uh, been increasing uh, in a lot of states, including Tennessee. So we were a little bit below one, you know, if you're below one, the disease is uh, shrinking because the, yeah. 
you know, every person that's infected is reproducing, is infecting less than one person. So it was slowly shrinking. It was estimated to be around 0.9. Um, now it's estimated to be a little above one, which means that the, it's growing. Mm -hmm. It's not um, growing very fast, but this, the you know, evidence is it's growing. And um, so we are doing pretty well. Um, we've actually gone out of the house a couple of times. We, we wear masks. However, um, we are noticing a lot of non-mask wearers out there. Um, so that kind of concerns me. We, um, we did grocery pickup at Walmart, which it, we think is about the safest way to get groceries because you order it online, right. you drive up, you, um, you know, you, you raise the, the, the trunk of the car basically from inside the car. Mm -hmm. they, they, they put the groceries in and then you drive away. There's no contact. You don't go in the store, et cetera. So, yeah. but while, while, we're, while we were there, we were waiting and, and we, I started watching people coming and going. I started keeping track of who had on masks and who didn't. Mm -hmm. And it was only about 25% of the people were wearing masks. So um, there's going to be some increase, I think, uh, as people get um, uh, tired of staying at home and, and going out, but and, and then people not wearing masks too, I think. Because even though, um, you know, and these are cloth masks, I mean, that's what we wear, but even though those are not uh, an effective barrier, uh, it's, if, if both people are wearing, you know, the studies have been done that if everyone wears masks, the, 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 uh, you know, the, the virus has a much lower reproduction rate and it basically you can knock out about 90% of the cases, which would be a huge benefit. And I think, you know, we could almost return to normal activities with, with that kind of reduction, but people are not going to wear masks. So, or at least majority are not. So that's, that's kind of disappointing. Yeah. I, I, I was listening to a podcast with uh, Brett Weinstein. Uh, he's an evolutionary biologist and he did a simple in home study, um, you know, basically when we were first figuring out if masks were worthy or not, you remember when we first started out, they said, well, you don't need a mask. Right. And he was a little skeptical about that. And then he said, I wonder how well a bandana would work. And so what he did was he, he took a, he took a light meter and he put it in front of a, he put his camera, which had a light meter, he put it in front of a light source and he measured the amount of light coming into it. And then he put a double, layered bandana in front of it and found out that it knocked out 99.9% .9 of the, the light. And his rationale was, well, a photon is smaller than a coronavirus. And right. Therefore, you could, you could assume safely that it's going to have at least the same proportion of knockdown effect. So um, that's one way you can get to some usable numbers about what the what you can avoid if you have that mask on. Now, interestingly, you talk about the infection rate. I um, was talking to a friend of mine who's got family in Korea, and she told me, this is from two weeks ago, I think you can look it up now, that there was one young man that went out to a, a series of nightclubs on a Saturday night and didn't realize he had the, the coronavirus and did. And I believe he infected 80 to 100 people by himself. Right, right. Way over the uh, that that threshold that you were talking about there. Yeah, that's, I guess that's one of the scary things about this virus is it's, um, it's highly contagious. And that may be because it's so new. A lot of people don't have any sort of immunity to it. Now, Christian and I have been doing some studies and we've been coming at it different ways. Christian's been looking at the United States. I've been looking at the world and, and uh, 
think we could share with you some of the findings we have. Uh, one of the things that, that we do at our company is we've, we've come up with a, a four-dimensional system to look at uh, basically markets is what it was originally intended to look at. And so the, the four-dimensional system kind of worked like this. It would look at two valued features. Say for an electric car, it would be horsepower and range. And so you would assume that if you added horsepower, you you could make a car that was more worth more. And if you added range, you'd get the same thing. And so those are two value variables. So range and horsepower affecting a a, a, a vertical axis price. And then you'd also say if the price went up, the quantity demanded would be down would go down. So the quantity would form another axis. So we'd have these two valued features. In the case of electric car range and horsepower, and then you'd have a, a vertical axis price, and you have another horizontal axis going off in another direction for quantity. So a four-dimensional system. So some of my friends said, well, Doug, why don't you try to take your system and see if you can apply it to COVID? So after listening to Dr. Weinstein, the evolutionary biologist, tell us that the goal of the coronavirus is to push itself into the future. I figured its objective, or its, as we say in mathematics, its objective function would be cases. It wants to be in more humans. It'd love to be in every human on the planet and every other animal if it could be. And so what I discovered was that the number of cases went up with population density. And I don't think that came as too much of a surprise because we see, saw what happened in New York City. And we see if you're in rural Wyoming, your chances of getting there are quite a bit less. So we, we, we kind of suspected that density would be a function. But very surprisingly, we discovered that GDP was highly correlated to the coronavirus. And, and I guess our explanation of the first pass was, and, it, and we're going to talk about how it changed. First pass was, well, maybe the, it's highly correlated to GDP, which is to say it goes up with GDP, was because of the ability to travel. And travel is part of the, the function that coronavirus has to do has to do it's got to travel from one person to another so if somebody's traveling in a jet it lets the virus go thousands of miles for basically for free and um, at the same time on the population side what we saw was there was a if you po plotted population of the countries on the horizontal axis and cases on the on the vertical that there was this upper covid infection rate that went from lower left again low at the lower left would be no cases at zero and zero population in the lower corner going up to the population of China on the horizontal axis and and maybe or perhaps a matching number of cases on the vertical. So the, the there'd be a 45 degree line that would describe the potential for the virus. And somewhere below that, that line, there's this, there's this phenomenon that happens called the upper COVID disease limit. And it turned out that as we could appreciate here in the United States, that the United States was on that. And so were a whole bunch of European countries, everybody, including uh, France, the UK, Italy, Great Britain, all the way down to San Marino. And the only other non-European country in the mix at the beginning was uh, Qatar. And so then, Christian, you and I had some discussions about uh, vitamin D around that time. You remember some, what we, we started to talk about in vitamin D? Yeah, you, you had said something about um, some studies had, had found that smokers were more resistant, and, but that it wasn't the necessarily the nicotine or the smoking per se, but it was the fact that people had to go outdoors to smoke because so many places don't allow smoking indoors. 
So they got sunshine and the vitamin D from that, and uh, that helped build their immune system. Um, so I looked at that too, and I looked at, um, at, at state level data, and uh, I found that, that, that the number of clear days in the state in a year was, uh, was a reliable indicator. The, the more clear days, the, nice. the, lower the, inst the lower the number of deaths due to COVID in the state. Um, which helps explain some of the difference between, I think, Florida, which has had a much lower number of deaths, but is fairly densely populated state than uh, New York, which is highly, uh, you know, very dense population, but is, has had the most deaths by far. And, and pretty much all those Northeast states have that. Um, so I, that was one thing, and I got that uh, based on our discussions. The, the other thing, um, the number of, uh, of miles of interstate in a state uh, oh, is, pos okay. is positively correlated. So the more, the more interstate there is, the more people are driving around, the more opportunities there are for people to spread the virus within a state. Wow. Um, someone uh, pointed out to me that, you know, one reason why New York had such an issue was because you've got these, these high-rise buildings, um, both offices and residences, like in Manhattan, where air is being circulated throughout the entire building. So if you have a respiratory virus, you cough, is picked up, mm -hmm. it, and then it, goes, it could go throughout the entire building based on you know, where, where you are when, when this happens. So um, I use this kind of a, what we call a proxy. A lot of times in modeling, you may not necessarily have a, the direct variable you want, but, but you may have something that is pretty close or is representative of that or correlated with it. And in this case, the tallest building in the state was, uh, is correlated positively with the number of deaths. So, um, you know, states like California, Georgia, Illinois, all have taller buildings than say Alabama, which, uh, and Tennessee, which have had, uh, fewer deaths. Um, the also some you know, population density, of course, is by far, I think, the number one driver. So a state like New York is a lot more deaths than a state like Montana or, um, you know, uh, Alaska. So, um, you know, which has a very, you know, Alaska uh, only has like 1.3 people per, uh, per square mile, something like that. It's very spread out. Of course, now some of that is there's a lot of land that's not, livable in that area, but, but still it's a pretty, pretty sparsely populated state. Another couple of strange ones. Well, one is not so much a predictive variable as it is an expo and you know, it explains what has happened so far. And there was a study done uh, in the New York times that uh, it was done by the New York times reporters and reported in the New York times that, um, you know, about 35% of the deaths due to COVID occurred in nursing homes. And they reported by state the number of outbreaks in nursing homes. Not, it's not the number of nursing homes, but it's the number of outbreaks of COVID that occurred in nursing homes. Mm. Um, and that is very strongly positively correlated with the number of deaths because the more people that are exposed in nursing homes and people, and those are people not only that are elderly, but people that are in poor health. Uh, a neighbor of mine is studying um, basically data science for, uh, biological applications at Columbia mm. and he's, you know, at home now with the, the pandemic, but he, um, 
we've run into him a couple of times taking walks and our socially distanced walks. Mm -hmm. You know, we've discussed this with him and he said, it's not really age that it's a, a factor um, that, that age is kind of a proxy for overall health that a lot of times people that are older is not as good as health, right. not in as good a health. People are younger. It's really, it's really health. That's the determinant. Um, but people in nursing homes, what's the issue with nursing homes is people in nursing homes are not necessarily just older. There are people that are older and they really can't take care of themselves. So they're not in good health. Right. So I think that's the driver there. And they're also in an, they're inside and they're kind of stuck inside. So um, they're, they're in, in closed space. And then also the, uh, another, another kind of strange one I think may uh, be, has something to do with where people work or the kind of conditions they work in. And it was the percentage of the state's population that are citizens is mm -hmm. negatively correlated with population deaths. Wow. So um, and I think that has to do with, uh, in a lot of cases, um, immigrants that are not citizens often work in meat processing plants. And there've been a lot of high profile outbreaks of coronavirus in these plants. Right. So, um, so that, you know, a state like uh, California, um, where 27% of the population is not a citizen, has had a higher number of deaths than a state like Alabama, where 96.5% of the population are citizens. So. Wow, it sounds like you ran a lot of variables across this. Some, some of the you know, it, was, it, it was interesting because, you know, people were, uh, you know, I post this on social media and people give me comments, you know, oh, what about this, what about that? Because, you know, you see these these things like um, like obesity has something to do with it or uh, diabetes or, um, you know, those kinds of things. And I looked at, at, right. at those variables and it, uh, actually uh, obesity was actually uh, negatively correlated Mm. Uh, with deaths. Uh, and I think it could be because uh, actually the Southern states, which have had fewer deaths, it's also a higher rate of, of, of obesity, also a higher rate of diabetes. So, but, so, but neither one of those was really correlated. Diabetes really has almost, almost no correlate correlation. When you look at the percentage of the, of the population in the state that is diabetic. Um, so yeah, those, those didn't seem to be drivers. Those are things that people had, had said were drivers, but uh, the data didn't bear it out. And it's not a, when, what I found, I, so did you do a linear regression in your analysis? No, these are all log linear regressions. Okay. Uh, I started out doing, because I wasn't sure what the shape of this data was, because I wasn't too sure you know, about it. But I started out with a, a, um, a linear regression, but then I also did a, because um, the number of, I also, I looked at two variables, um, deaths per million, and then I just looked at deaths. And actually, the if, number of deaths is a an integer variable, right? So it's sure. um, so so for that, uh, I looked at um, another kind of regression, but it's basically an exponential function. So it's so it's a, a, a Poisson regression. Mm -hmm. So the arrival times of deaths are a random variable, you know, arriving at random times, and uh, and it's an exponential function. And and you can kind of see that population density is exponentially correlated with the number of deaths. Because you go from, you know, sure. around 10 or 20 in Idaho. At the time I was doing this analysis, there were 20 deaths in Idaho and 20,000 in New York. So um, actually there were 69 deaths in Idaho at this time when I was doing this analysis and 20, 000, over 20,000 in New York, so uh, New York State. So um, there, there's actually that exponential relationship. Was So it's not just a power law, but actually an exponential. Wow, that's interesting. You know, another thing that we were looking at too, remember 
you know, I, I when I did the first cut at in 4D of this, and I saw this upper limit that I was talking about with the United States and the European countries and Qatar, then I found a lower boundary that included China and India and the rest of the countries on the lower bound, which is to say they're the ones that had the least number of infections per their population. They were uniformly in Southeast Asia and Africa. And so there was some thought that it might be a Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere thing, or that it might be a, a temperate zone versus equatorial zone thing. And so what's happened since I first looked at this in four dimensions, uh, just looked at it late last week. Well, since in the intervening time, of course, Chile and, and Peru both have had enormous explosions in, in their the number of cases, and they've gone from being in the middle of the pack, as it were, relative to deaths per thousand to leading the pack, being up on top of the line. At the same time, um, Qatar went from being on the line to being actually past the line, which is to say they're leading the pack in terms of deaths per thousand. And and along with that, Kuwait and Bahrain both uh, started to approach the line. But very interestingly, Southeast Asia and most but not all, most of Africa still doesn't show very much in the way of infections. Now, I don't know if that's entirely due to testing. I haven't been able to, to uh, prove that it is or isn't, or because they don't have the infection. One thing that was interesting yesterday, maybe you read this, Christian, is that they're thinking now that the test for antibodies is basically a coin flip. Did you, did you read about that? Yeah, that there was a lot of, yeah, that's not a very, um, yeah, it wasn't a good discriminator of whether you had it or not. Yeah, I, I, what do you, what do you do with that? Do you make a, do you come up with a new test? I mean, when they say the test, is there only one test now, or what's your understanding of that? I guess I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe they need to come up with a new test. It doesn't sound like it's very effective. Yeah, I mean, a fifty-fifty. Why, why bother to do the test? Yeah, why bother to do it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the other thing I saw, I, I don't know. Uh, there was. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies being published very quickly. So the, you know, a little bit of a, you know, you can sometimes wonder about the quality of some of the studies because they're, I mean, they are trying to do things quickly and they need to, to try to figure out what's going on. But um, one of the things that I saw, um, something about people that have had the cold, you know, and, you know, cause you, you get a cold uh-huh. and, you know, you develop antibodies for that particular cold virus and then you never get that cold virus again but that there's some cross immunity from, because this new virus is a coronavirus and colds are a particular type of coronavirus, mm-hmm. that there's some cross immunity between colds and, and this coronavirus, which is kind of interesting. I mean, if that's the case, that could help put a lid on the growth. It could play, it could explain why there's a lot of people that don't really uh, express any symptoms, you know, or display any oh, symptoms, you know? Right. So, uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not sure there's enough uh, evidence. I mean, the, the the little bit that I saw was a pretty small uh, study, you know, very small sample size. So it's you know, one of the things when you have small data sets is uh, it's easy to get fooled by randomness. Well, um, yeah, I mean, is, is what you're saying the data set's small from the number, the, the standpoint of the number of countries or the number of variables or what's no, the, no, but not, not what we're doing, but like that little study that they did looks like they looked at people, oh, right, right, right. they looked at, they looked at people in this particular study and they, uh, they saw that um, they, they, you know, they, they looked at people and they, they said there were some people 
that when they were exposed to the uh, coronavirus or they were, they had expressed their, their cells, they took their cells out, I guess, and they exposed them to coronavirus in a lab and their cells had some sort of reactivity or some sort of, um, it had some sort of, uh, it wasn't like, like it would, like it had some sort of antibody that would fight it off kind of thing. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, and so, uh, I, I, I kind of like that. And, and to this extent, because, you know, my son's, uh, two and a half. And since he's gone to daycare, I, I've gotten a lot of colds, um, in the last couple of years. So uh, ho- hopefully that will, that will help if that, that's the case. You know, it makes but, the it makes the case then as you're bringing that up is that you, you don't want to try to box your kid in from getting every little virus that comes by because that's part of what builds up their immunity. And in this case, it's building up yours too, maybe, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Hopefully that, that made it worth it because I not only had, I had a lot of colds and then uh, I also got hen, foot, and mouth, which I never had before. So <laughs> a couple years yeah. ago. <laughs> hen, foot? Yeah. What? Say that again? It's called hand, foot, and mouth disease. Oh, Oh yeah. yeah, I thought that was a disease for. Um, oh, I was thinking hoof and mouth. That's a cow disease. But you got yeah, hand. yeah. It's yeah. It's uh, basically it's um, it affects your hand, your yeah. feet, and the area around your mouth, and you get um, you basically break out in these little. Um, yeah. So my and, and what's uh, the good thing for my son is that uh, the kids get it, but um, they they don't suffer from it. So mm. it's not, it's not painful for them at all, really, but they have to stay home. So, um, and, uh, he, um, he stayed home, you know, I worked from home and he stayed home with me and I worked some as I could, but, but, uh, and so I think I was exposed to it a lot. So, um, after about a week after he had it, then I had it. And it's, it was, um, it was very brief. I really, really the, the period where I, you know, was hurting was lasted about 24 hours, but it lasted about, three, four days, but, wow. uh, my, my, my hands, uh, the, the itching in my hands was almost uncontrollable. It was crazy. It was, yeah. it was very, yeah, it was a pretty painful day, you know, uh, about 24 hours in there. So I woke up, my hands were itching and, um, and then, you know, I, I got out of bed and it's like these, my hands are covered in these little blisters oh, and then my, and then the bottom of my feet too. Um, and so it's kind of weird cause when you first get up and you start walking and you're you, you kind of get over it in a little bit, but it kind of hurts to walk. Oh, no, that's terrible. But it only lasted, I mean, I was really, I was really only uh, hurting for a day or so. And then, um, um, but then it got over it. But yeah, it was, it was pretty painful. Oh, geez. I'm sorry to hear that, Christian. Uh, that's okay. It's, 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 but maybe it's all, you know, for the good, if, if it helps me fight off coronavirus. So. I remember growing up as a kid, you know, we used to hear of uh, the cows getting hoof and mouth disease, you know, and I wonder if the, if the, cows get it and it's like you're like when you get it and they they get up to walk and it hurts to walk it's not like they can scratch their hooves very easily oh yeah 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 It'd be very painful for the cow so speaking of cows which reminds me of pigskins we've you and i were talking a little bit about football too so um all right yes so um again i was challenged by some of my my friends to see if i could get the analysis to drive into uh nfl the value of NFL players. And, and one thing we discovered was that for say wide receivers, which is the group that we studied that there was a, um, that you could predict the value of a wide receiver based on his, if he was in the league for six years or more, he could base it, his value on the number of reception he had receptions he had per game and his 40 yard dash time. 
and the number of the number of years it was in the league, I believe. I got to look this up actually while we're talking here. So one thing that was interesting when we were we were talking about that, Christian. I mean, we were having a discussion on on LinkedIn, and, and somebody pointed out that that um, you know the the forty time is is only really a proxy for um, the ability to get open. And so what I, I discovered was that it actually, you know, you could find that you could predict the value of somebody based on their 40 time, I'm going to this thing here, 40 time receptions per game and their age. So if they were in the league for six years, which meant that they had, had a chance to renegotiate their contract and they were making say four receptions per game, but they ran the 40 and 4.65 that they would be worth 6 million per year uh, on the average there. But if they could get their time down a quarter second, now which is heroic down to 4.4, they would be worth two thirds more. They'd be worth 10 million bucks. And so I have one, one guy that's following me point out that, um, you know, that's, that doesn't explain people like Jerry Rice or Fred Bolitnikoff or a bunch of other receivers. I think really what that is, is, is getting back to what you're talking about before is that some variables, some variables are proxies for others, right? The ability to be open. Sometimes speed is a good proxy for the ability to get open because you can run faster than other people. You might be open more often, right? I mean, you use proxy variables for a variety. time. Yeah, for a variety, a variety of uh, different types of work you do. Give us another example of a proxy variable you've used. I'm using speed here for a proxy variable for a receiver to get open. How would you use that and say, um, well, we're, you're studying construction now. So is there a way that you would have a proxy variable for construction or for the COVID or, or something else? That you yeah, for, well, for, for, um, for construction, um, you know, square feet is kind of a – is a proxy of how big is the project, right? right. So dollars per square foot. Um, that's a, a relatively simple one, but it's but it's a the most significant driver typically in that kind of project. Uh, if you look at satellites, uh, weight. You know, you don't. It's not like you go to the the store. You know, when you go to the store and you you buy bananas by the pound. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you don't exactly buy satellites by the by the by the pound. Um, because you know they they do different things, some have different functions, et cetera. But what the weight gives you is the weight is something that's available early mm -hmm. in a project. There's usually estimates of weight available, and it's a very good proxy for the the scope of the project because something that's small will likely be simple and be relatively inexpensive, whereas something that's large will likely have a lot of instruments on it and a lot of functionality, and will likely be very expensive. So you, you got things that range all the way from you know, the low millions of dollars and even less than a million dollars to things that cost billions of dollars, like the James Webb Space Telescope, which is uh, probably the one of the current poster child for cost growth. Yeah. So, for example, in boats, to, to take an example that, you know, might, maybe more people understand boats than, than satellites. I mean, you take a, a small canoe that's got a certain amount of displacement it's got weight too but the the displacement of it is a proxy for the weight but it's a proxy for the size and so the a canoe costs less than a 
20 foot run, runabout that costs less than a hundred foot yacht that costs less than a, a cruise ship, right? In all cases there, what we're looking at is the proxy for the proxy for the, the size of the job might be the displacement or the, or the weight of the, of the, of the particular product you're looking at. Right. Right. So yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. So maybe you can tell some people some other stuff in your book that you, that you specifically looked at that you got some analytics out of that you, that were, were surprising to you. Um, well, I was I was surprising. It was surprising that you know, looking at a variety of other projects, that even something as relatively simple as roads, you know, eight out of ten road projects overrunning cost, um, many of them overrunning schedule. The, the extent of the cost growth is not as much um, on average, but it was interesting seeing that that these projects, uh, even relatively simple types of projects, experienced cost growth. It was um, interesting seeing that. You know, these kind of projects um, continue to see cost growth, and the problem has not gotten any better over time. You know, it's it's kind of like uh, you know if you went went to a pub or a bar and you played darts, right? And you, you when you when you threw the dart, you would you would turn your head away from the dartboard <laughs> and never look to see how you did, and so you have no idea how good a how good you are at darts but you continue to throw the darts and you never look at the results. That's, that's to a large extent what projects do. They, sure. um, they don't really look at the results. They don't learn the lessons of the past. So as Santayana said, you know, those who, who can't remember the past are doomed are doomed to repeat, uh, you know, repeat it um, and repeat the problems that occurred. So, you know, that's, that's an issue. So you look at the track record. Uh, and so in the book, I look at, um, and it's, you know, it's not easy to find a track record because people don't track it. So, sure. uh, but I was able to find 10 projects, variety of projects, some from my domain, a couple others from other domains. And uh, if you do a risk analysis, one of the things that is commonly looked at is what they call a confidence level, which is a percentile of a distribution, which, so for example, if you were to say that the 90% confidence level, that would mean that would be the value for which nine times out of 10, Mm-hmm. the actual cost should come in at or below that amount. Right. So uh, if you were to do the project, you know, you know, a hundred times, 90 of those times, the actual cost should come in at or below that, the 90% confidence level, which for those familiar with probability is the same thing as the 90th percentile of the cumulative distribution function. Right. So when you look at, at the track record though, it's actually, uh, and so I looked at 10 projects, um, is actually the opposite of what you expect. Only mm. only one of those projects, uh, for only one of those projects was the actual cost less than the 90th percentile. Wow. So 90% were above. And it's for 10 data points, it's um, it's not exactly, you know, 90% because it's a small data set, but, you know, it's roughly kind of what you think. It's kind of the opposite of what you expect. You know, you expect 9 out of 10 to be below their nine, 90% confidence levels, but actually only one was. And um, and actually, that one was actually one of the. Uh, they say that uh, you you know you can't really uh, get a cost estimate right because you'll be um, if you whatever you guess or if you estimate, it'll be a little bit different. Um, but that's, there's been two times in my, uh, that I've gotten estimates right on the nose, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And one of those, the ten that I listed, was one of them. 
it was, um, I did a joint confidence level analysis for a mission that went to, I think it went to Venus or mm-hmm. Mercury. And, uh, no, it was, it was mission to, it was mission to Mars. And, um, and the actual cost came in within about 1% of my, wow. uh, 50% confidence, confidence estimate, you know, my median cost estimate. And, uh, within a month or so, my median schedule estimate is right on basically. So, um, I didn't, I didn't realize this Somebody pointed out to me a few years ago. Cause you know, that's, that's the issue is people do an estimate and then the project's not completed for several years. So you have to have a lot of patience to keep track of, you know, what's going on. So I didn't know how it had turned out until someone pointed out to me that, Oh yeah, your, your estimate for that mission was right on. So you threw and, the dart and walked away and somebody else pointed out where it landed. And to somebody you. pointed out that I hit a bullseye. Yeah. So <laughs> was I lucky or was I good? I don't, you know, but I think one of the things, uh, about that project is looking at both they, they looked at both uh, cost and schedule and they looked at the relationships together and i think you know just the fact of, of the discipline of doing that can help a project figure out where it needs to be so um i think that was i think that's one thing that's helpful the other estimate i've got right on was in guessing the weight of my uh, son's birth mm. um my wife and i would um when he was before he was born and we we did have some um we had a what Bayesians would call a prior we had some prior information because right. um uh, during ultrasounds and things they would give an estimate of his weight so right. they kind of knew we kind of kind of knew what a range was coming up to his birth um but i uh, but i based my uh, estimate on an analogy to my own mm-hmm. i was eight and a half pounds at birth and then i there's another phenomenon called regression to the mean which means that uh like like Francis Scott, who who coined the term regression, he, uh, he noted a tendency for the the heights of fathers and sons to be positively correlated. Mm-hmm. But he noticed that uh, fathers that were taller than average, that their sons would be closer to the average than they were, and sure. that that short fathers would you know you know fathers that were shorter than the average would also tend to have sons that were shorter than average, but their son sons would be closer to the average than they were so you know average height uh i don't know what it was in 19th century england which is what galton was looking at but 20th century 21st century america average height of the male is five foot ten so um you know if, if you know for example i my dad uh, was over six feet tall and i happened to be five ten so you know he was taller than average I'm right on the average. So it kind of, re- I kind of regressed to exactly to the mean. So I thought something similar applied to my son because I looked at um, my birth weight, eight and a half pounds was above the average birth weight for, for male infants. Um, and so I figured it would, it would regress somewhat to the mean. So my estimate was eight pounds, four ounces, and that's exactly what he weighed. Wow. That's great. So you say you can't get an estimate right. I've, I've gotten it right at least twice. Maybe I've been lucky. You know, I want, I want to talk about all my other estimates that weren't so, so close. So. Well, you know, there, there's a lot of things that mitigate the, the ability to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And, and one of the things that I discovered that I, I could never could never really fully quantify it where I worked at Lockheed because they, they didn't keep this kind of data, um, Lockheed Martin. But <clears throat> you, you'll remember from some of these software models that are out there, in fact, your company produces one as one of the one of the features that they can put into a software model is the predicted level of skill 
of the coders that are going to be on the software or the predictable level of skill that might happen on a, on a different type of job, but often used for software, right? You have a skill level, I think, that's attached to your software coders, right? Yes, yes. There's a, there, yeah, there's, there's a lot of uh, yeah, knobs, whistles, and that's one of, a lot of uh, knobs to, to turn, and that's one of them, yes. Yeah, well, interestingly, at, at, at Lockheed, what, what happened was, you know, Lockheed makes lot, made lots of really innovative planes. And so the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, which some of the listeners have heard of, where I worked for 31 and a half years, that was the, the, the core group was formed in the latter half of World War II. And Kelly Johnson put together this crew and this crew stuck together. These were mostly young engineers at the time. These were mostly guys in their 20s, 30s, at, uh, really bright and really knew their stuff. And so they, they stuck together for a long time. And so the, the, the group built the P-38, and then they built the P-80 Shooting Star, the first jet, and then eventually the F-104 and the U-2. And then, you know, something in the order of, 25 years after they had been together, they started to work on something called the A-12, which led to, which was the predecessor to the SR-71. Now, the SR-71 was an extremely complicated plane built out of, mostly out of titanium, which nobody had ever worked with extensively. So they had to work out a way to work with titanium. They never knew how, they didn't know how to do that. They were trying to scratch their heads to figure out how to get it done. But what was fascinating about this was that the cost of this project actually came in below the prediction that the model, our models would make years later. And I believe the reason for that was that this was because of this crew. This crew had been together at this point for roughly a quarter century. And so you had some of the best people in the world working together uh, to, for that long. They They ended up being able to do things in a very quick and effective manner. And that's, that's one thing that's hard to capture with cost models is the ability of a crew to work together. Then that so which could drive the cost down, which happens only infrequently. And then the other thing is that two other main factors, I think that drive cost in the other direction is what, what didn't you know, what are the so-called unknown unknowns? And then there's, perhaps you want to talk about this Christian, there's the pressure sometimes to people for people to try to, as they say in the industry, sell a project. They want to post a low project price so they can get the project sold to whomever it is that would provide them funds to go ahead with that. And so I've seen more than once people try to game the system. In fact, I wrote a paper entitled The Checkmark Function where back to your point about weight being a proxy for size and size being the proxy for cost, it turned out that there was a, if you looked at 15 aircraft programs or 19, whatever it was they looked at, I think it was 15. And you took the weight of the project before its formal go-ahead, you would have a certain a certain weight to it. And then just as the project was about to get formal go-ahead, they would do the last cost estimate. And, and magically, these costs would go down by an average of about 10%, the weights, that is to say. So the weight engineers are basically forced by the program managers to drop the weights, which let the cost estimators estimate the, the cost of the project uh, based on a smaller platform. And then, of course, not only did the weights grow, the weights grew past where they were in the first place. And so 
So you've got these additional ameliorating factors, right? Uh, they, there are things that push estimates in the wrong direction and, and perhaps for, you know, in the case of unknowns, you just don't know, but in the case of somebody trying to gain the system, you've got people doing unto the project as the project <laughs> doesn't need to have, uh, doesn't need to, you know, needs to have truth and they're, they're putting up a fiction. Have you seen that in your work too? Oh yes, uh, there's um, you know there's several factors that play into that. One is uh, one of the chief ones is optimism. Um, optimism is so prevalent. I liken it to a cult uh, because it's <laughs> right. um, it's it's so prevalent and it doesn't seem to uh, it doesn't seem to change its opinion in the face of facts, right? Which is all this yeah. cost and schedule growth that occurs. So yeah, I liken, to, I liken it to a cult. Um, there was a and. There's a group at the in the Secretary of Defense's office that does independent al analysis, and they they call it uh, you know when when you uh, you know fall prey to this optimism they call it drinking the Kool Aid you know that's that comes from <laughs> Jim Jones you know is an infamous cult leader whose uh, members committed mass suicide by drinking cyanide laced Kool Aid so yeah don't drink the Kool Aid uh, you want you want to be uh, independent. It's kind of tough. So you you know, I've I've uh, done independent analyses and I've done a project. I've done work for a project office and I've been prey to the optimism. Um, so it's so it's uh, you know difficult to combat. So optimism is a is a key one. Uh, that I've seen that from the in, from the inside of a project where you're not uh, just trying to get the work. You're you're working for the government, doing the government cost estimate. And they're optimistic as well. They're they're not trying to game the system per se to to get uh, work from the government. They are the government. So, but but they are uh, prone to optimism. Uh, they assumed. I worked on a project one time. Um, that eventually was canceled. But they assumed a lot of op optimist. Uh, assumed a lot of heritage from previous systems. Wow. Uh, so, for example, they were going to take an existing. Uh, space shuttle solid rocket booster, which was a four segment booster, and they were going to extend it to a fifth segment. And they assumed there was a lot of heritage. So, one of the things we later learned in working with experts on solid rocket boosters was as soon as you open up a case to change anything in a solid rocket booster, you basically have to redesign the whole thing. So, uh, that, that increased our estimate by hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. Just, just that one assumption. So uh, that that was yeah that was very eye opening to me um, because you know when you're when you're doing a what they call a solid rocket you know solid propellants like a you think like a firecracker or a bottle rocket type of thing um, you know it's it's a very volatile combination as you know and so you have to do a lot of testing along the way to make sure you know things are stable and the design stable and things like that so um, so that 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 was that's one that's one example. Um, you know, it comes up all the time, but yeah, it is on the other side too. You know, the, the, in the defense market, the big prime contractors have a high incentive to be optimistic. Uh, and part of it is, let's say you're looking at the defense market and you're going to build sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of tanks or planes, uh, submarines, you know, what have you. Uh, the, the real payoff is in, the production of those systems, not the development. Right. And it's also in, in um, continuing to produce, even as you, as you built all the parts. And it's 
also, you, you know, you, you maintain it, you, you know, the government will pay you to maintain it and, and, and provide spare parts along the way. So it's, it's a big, uh, it's, it's, it's a big, uh, you know, a big return on your investment. So a lot of times they will lowball what it will cost to develop it in order to get the real payoff in production. So, and even, even to the extent of losing a little money. So uh, I've seen cases where on one tank program that they basically had uh, three contractors produce a prototype. And then the winner of that wound up producing all the, uh, all the units, mm-hmm. all the tanks and, um, you know, doing all the production of the tanks and the winner of that program, actually when you look at the cost reports for that. They actually lost uh, a few million dollars in the development wow. in order to, in order to, because they saw it kind of as an investment to, to, and they were kind of an outsider in that market. So, they, they, they won the work and then they made a lot of money on the production side. So, uh, so they kind of saw it as a, as a buy, you know, kind of a, a buy-in because once, once that contract's awarded for production, the government's not going to switch. It's, it's uh, difficult for a number of reasons, part of which is the government's own making. One of those is the government uh, does not want to purchase the data rights up front. You have to basically do that. And uh, which is basically they don't own the, the blueprints to their own systems. Basically, they, they if they if they did buy the blueprints, they could potentially take that work away, and then have someone else build it. The other factor is that you know the supply chain is so complex that if you were to try to take the work away, uh, it would be very difficult to actually just build to a blueprint. Uh, these systems are very complex, and they require lots of specialized equipment made by a variety of different companies. Yeah, that's that's always been a big problem. I, just to punctuate your point there, I my my analysis of the ongoing B twenty one program suggests that it's they want to build one hundred units at six hundred and ten million dollars a copy in twenty sixteen dollars. And those of you familiar with my work will discover that I I like this idea of a demand frontier, which in the case of bombers that the United States government purchases is very stable over the last 20 years hasn't changed by more than a couple percentage points over that time and my analysis suggests that there are not the the predicted or the required price quantity point 100 units of these these vehicles at that price they have less than one chance in in a billion of acquiring that that combination so um somebody made the estimate <laughs> for northrop back in the day through the dart, walked away, and so when we come back later, we'll see. Well, they, my guess is it'll it'll go the way of the uh, B two did. The, the B two was originally going to make 132 units, and the price went up and up and up, and they eventually settled at 21 units. So I think the the B twenty one will suffer the same fate. So that that's kind of where we are right now. So. Appreciate that insight. Um, yeah, and that's that's uh, and I think yeah, you see that a lot in your work, and I've seen that too, where um, you actually uh, wind up, um, you know, they they plan for a certain number of units, so the the uh, manufacturer is tooled up and has a large fixed investment to build a large number of units, and then they actually buy a lot less, which drives right. up the, the the cost per the you know the price per unit and the cost per unit. Yeah, that happens. That happens frequently. That's that's kind of what you discovered is the norm now, really. 
Well, Christian, I've, I've appreciated your, your time again here. Again, congratulations on your book. Um, I can't wait to get my copy on it so I can have you sign it for me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's coming out approximately when, do you suppose? Uh, it's planned for a publication in November. Um, you can find it on Amazon by um, searching under my name, Christian Smart, S-M-A-R-T, and also typing in the words Project Risk Management. And um, should should come up for you. It's available for pre-order now. should be uh, on the shelves and available on the ebook version by by November. Well, I, as I said, I got my pre-order, and I hope I was number one on your list there, because I. Uh, I think so. I've, I've, a couple other people have told me they have pre-ordered it, but uh, yeah, you're right up there. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Well, I'd like to thank our listeners for joining in, and and please join us next time for our some more of Smart Remarks in Howard States. Goodbye, and and thank you very much. Smart Remarks, Howard States, is brought to you by Me, Inc., the discoverers of and world leader in multidimensional economics. Please visit our website at www.meevaluators.com. You can address your questions to the show at info at meevaluators.com. You can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash M-E-E-L-L-C. You can follow us on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash meevaluators. On Twitter at at me4d. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at at Douglas underscore Howard. <laughs>